Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, I said last week I didn't know when I'd be back. Well, I'm back after a week, it turns out. And uh, this podcast, we're building up, of course, to the Crucible. I thought what we'd do is uh, deal with all the emails we've had in, and we've had plenty in. Thank you for them. Uh, I'll be back on Thursday to look at the draw, and then we'll allow ourselves to luxuriate in what is, of course, the great 17 days of the World Championship. Of course, the World Championship is on at the moment. The qualifier has been fanta- fa- uh, fascinating and fantastic. Um... And interesting, and what is proven, of course, is what we knew already, which is that the best of 19s are a great test. They provide great drama. You know, it can be one-sided. We've seen a few matches fizzle out, but when they go close, the other night I commentated on Matthew Stevens and Deshawat Poomjang. It's a very, very exciting match. I mean, Poomjang is a, is a great character in his own right, but um, it was very exciting. Matthew did so well to win 10-8 because it looked for all the world like going 9 all. He needed a couple of snookers. He got them. He made a good clearance. But it, what it shows is they're worth awaiting gold. It was a great decision to revert back to best of 19s, and I'm sure that that will be the case for the future, because we know it from the, the Crucible, we know it from finals, the Tour Championship, but we're seeing it again in the World Qualifiers. Let's get straight in. Let's get straight in with some observations. And we're going to start with uh, Gary McKenzie. <clears throat> he says, I've recently discovered your podcast and have been enjoying immensely listening to your thoughts on the game we all love. I've been watching the game for over 30 years and I'm very much looking forward to another two weeks at the Crucible. In regards to the upcoming World Championship, this will be the first year I'll be tuning into Eurosport for the majority of the tournament. Normally the BBC will always be the broadcaster I go to for the big three, but I feel they treat the sport with slight disdain, particularly in the early stages. I know it's been mentioned previously that that it, it has always been the case that not every match will be shown on BBC Two. However, there's no need for them not to have dedicated coverage on BBC Four after 7pm. They do not cut away from matches during Wimbledon, nor live football. I feel this reflects badly on the sport. Eurosport has shown its dedication to the sport, and I'm going to be re- rewarding them with the majority of my viewership this time. In saying this, I'm thrilled the BBC are keeping John Virgo and his catchphrases. Perhaps it's time for you to come up with one of your own. I think Virgo has at least two, doesn't he? Where's the cue ball going? And there's always a gap. Even Alan McManus kind of has one. Oh, what a shot. <laughs> Finally, I have a random meeting with a snooker player. Now, of course, this is the sensation on the podcast. This is me speaking now. The sensation on the podcast in recent times has been 
banal meetings with snooker players, and there's plenty to come in this week's edition, I can assure you. But anyway, uh, Gary says, I met Jimmy White on his way to play a match in the Old Players' Championship. He signed my ticket, which is a cool one to have, as it's so far the last tournament he won. Apologies for the long email, and look forward to hearing your excellent comment during the world cha- commentary during the World Championship. Thank you, Gary. It wasn't a long email. Um, on the t- thank you for that. On the t- TV coverage, I'll say this, OK? I work for Eurosport, so very much... Um, very grateful that you're going to be watching the coverage with us. However, I do feel that uh, it should be recognised that you can now watch the World Championship. It's something I couldn't do 30 years ago as, as growing up as a snooker fan. You can now watch the World Championship, every ball of it, on the BBC and on Eurosport and Discovery+. Plus. The BBC iPlayer, if you have a fire stick, plug it in the telly, you can watch that all day long without interruption. Same with Discovery Plus. They'll have both tables, commentary on both tables. So it's all there for you. Going back 30 years, it wasn't. You know, you, you, you watched it when they gave it to you. So the BBC would come on and they'd show however many hours they showed and then they'd come off again and you might have to wait another three hours to see that same match, you know. Um, it is on BBC Four, actually, seven till nine, I think, every evening. So they're probably going to miss the ends of matches unless they stay on. But it is still on there. It's on BBC Two during the day. But the most important thing is you can watch it all. If you live in the UK, and we're privileged in the UK with the coverage we have, you can watch it all. People will have their own views on the, the, the commentary and the punditry and the, the blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, if you want to watch the matches, it is all there. Eurosport and Discovery Plus have both tables live. The BBC have both tables live. So it's a bit of a golden age, I think, in terms of just being able to watch the coverage. Um, all the rest of it, as I say, people have their views on, but I'm gonna slightly defend my colleagues at the BBC because it's a long production. You know, it's not just 17 days, there's a lot of planning, and they're long days, they're long, long days. All the people that work on the production behind the scenes, they all do their best, they're all there because they wanna be there as well, you know, they've got a lot of passion for it, they're all doing their best for all the broadcasters, and, you know, we just wanna, you know, make it as enjoyable for the, for the public as possible. Uh, whichever channel we're working for. So uh, whichever channel, and as I say, very happy to, to hear you're going to be watching Eurosport, but uh, whichever channel people are watching on, uh, it's all. But the point is it's all there now. You can watch it all. If you want to watch from morning to night, every ball, you can do that. And that was never the case years ago. Pre-internet, you couldn't do that. Um, and my view is, and I've said it before, I think in this day and age, to expect it all to be on linear TV is a little bit like saying... I shouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. You know, things have changed and the opportunities there. And I know people say, oh, well, my 92-year-old grand can't, you know, doesn't understand. Okay, but that's not a reason <laughs> to, to not celebrate the fact that actually it is available in some capacity. And that's a good thing because it means we can uh, we can all enjoy it. But thank you, uh, Gary, for that. Nathan Manley uh, is from Australia, exotically. He's written before, of course. He says, greeting from Australia. Just a quick email to say, say how much I love the podcast. I really love how niche it is. <laughs> well, it's certainly that. If, if nothing else, Nathan, it's certainly that. He says, uh, I can clearly see why it's rocking up the charts in Zimbabwe. Hopefully crack the top ten soon. Yes, we were number 13 in Zimbabwe. Thanks for remembering. Um, we haven't been as high since, but anyway, you know, hope springs eternal. Now, he says, in relation to people's banal meetings with snooker players, I'd like to add my story. So this is the sensation I've been talking about, okay? Meeting snooker players. And the key thing about this is nothing really of any interest has to happen during the meeting. <laughs> we don't want revelations or, you know, you you ended up going to, going to watch a football match with them or something. No, it's just passing comments 
and basically very little. And there's plenty of that to come, by the way, later on. Anyway, he says, uh, my banal meeting is with a lookalike. So he's taken it to another level, OK? It's no longer just about players. It's people who look like players. And this is all, all good stuff. In this week of the World Championship, there's nothing more important to discuss than meeting a, someone who looked a bit like a snooker player. So it was about two years ago, I took my family to see a cricket match at the MCG. And after scanning our tickets at the gate, we were ushered to our seats by a very friendly and helpful gentleman aged in his 60s. After being seated, I said to my daughter Lucy, let's go back and see that nice man. I went up to him and said, you're probably not going to know who this guy is, but did you know you look exactly like? And he said, Dennis Taylor, the snooker player. I get that all the time. I was amazed by two things. One, that he was a dead ringer for him. And secondly, that someone from Australia knew who a snooker player was from the 80s. Anyway, that's my little contribution to your great podcast. Well, the important thing to say here, thank you, Nathan, this was at the MCG, so that's Melbourne, OK? So, as he says, in Australia. Dennis, of course, though, you know, people forget what a big star Dennis was. I mean, I know in the 80s the, the World Championship primarily was a British thing, but even so, he won the most famous snooker match ever played, and he was a big personality, he went on a lot of other TV shows. So... Maybe the fact that uh, this guy was aware that he looked like Dennis was because so many people maybe from Britain had come over and actually mentioned it to him because Dennis was a massive name then, you know. I mean, still is, I know, but in, in those days, just because of his glasses and everything, you know, he was very recognisable. And he still, as I mentioned earlier, he still gets royalties from the old Val Dunican show he went on in 1986. It was on again over Christmas, so that's another 37 quid for Dennis. We've got another one here, Matthew Tempest. He said, good luck with the World Championship. Thank you for the shout-out to the Preston Guildhall, a fab snooker venue with a lot of history that I would love to see part of the circuit again. Yes, the Preston Guildhall is open again, so who knows? We could be going back there. He says, just a quick late entry in your banal encounters with Snooker Stars saga. Mine wasn't banal. It was entirely mute and wordless. So this is getting better and better. We're now moving on to not only just uh, meeting players, but literally just kind of seeing them. He says, a few years ago, Steve Davis was DJing at my local pub, The Golden Lion, in Todmorden, West Yorkshire. I arrived armed and ready with a copy of Interest in his autobiography and a large felt-tip pen. However, on arrival, the place was absolutely packed, and Davis was single-handedly taking on the local pub pool, league, pub pool league's best players. The crowd around the pool table was ten deep. I could see no more than the occasional glimpse of his famous carrot top, now Elder Statesman Grey. Fast forward a few hours and a couple of bottles of red wine and just after midnight, Davis was on the decks, belting out something, I don't know what. I boogied my way through the dance floor, arrived at the DJ booth, only to realise that so deafening was the Spaceman 3 track, I think, that conversation was going to be a complete non-starter. So I reached over with my paperback of interesting in one hand, uh, uh, the felt-tip pen in the other, a big smile, I was hammered by this point, and hoped my message was clear. Davis, bless him, looked over the moon to see his own book, signed it, made a polite bow of the head with a big a beatific grin, and I boogied off through the dance floor with my signed copy held aloft above my head. Did I mention I was pissed? Now, I'm sorry about the language there, but this is, this is the email that's been sent in, OK? Uh, not a word was exchanged at any point, but having watched him on TV since 1981, it was, for me, a very moving moment. Well, thank you, Matthew. And uh, here's the thing. I saw Cliff Thorburn um, interviewed by Steve on the BBC at the Masters. And Cliff actually started the interview saying, it's nice to speak to you, Steve. You didn't speak to me the first 10 years I knew you. So Steve not speaking to people is nothing new. <laughs> nothing new at all. But um, anyway, thank you for that. And uh, I'm glad that he signed the, signed the book. And uh, hopefully your hangover wasn't too bad. Adam Boys 
Now, this is a terrific email, but we, we, we'll come to the, the meat of it later, which is another banal meeting. But he, Adam starts, uh, I've been a long-time snooker fan, but I've only happened across this and other snooker podcasts in the last 12 months. Are there other snooker podcasts? I didn't, I didn't know that. I joke, of course. I joke, of course. Uh, and I've been a regular listener ever since. I must say yours is my favourite. Oh, well, thank you. Your honest and informed opinions are always well delivered. I find the podcast very entertaining, and it often has me chuckling. Keep up the great work. I wanted to share with you and potentially other listeners, if you feel it's fit for broadcast. Oh, listen, we'll take anything. <laughs> Have you not heard the show? Oh, sorry. Uh, it says, I'd like to share a game which might, which may help avid snooker fans to get their partners to engage in viewing the snooker at home with a bit of shared enthusiasm. Yeah. Now, for, for friends or couples that might, as many do, enjoy a drink or two of an evening or a weekend, why not have a game of drinking snooker? The principle, our previous correspondent, I think, would 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 approve of this. He says the principle is simple. When watching a match, select two or more words likely to be said in the commentary from time to time. For example, I have cushion and cannon. The person you you are with you could have bulk and cue ball. Whenever a commentator says one of your words, you must take a slug of your drink. This can make for a very entertaining evening, depending on the words chosen and the frequency with which they are said. When watching a big BBC event, it can be ramped up further with the bonus round. If Dennis Taylor has cause to exclaim his catchphrase, the dreaded DDK, all participants must drain whatever remains in their glass. Likewise, if John Virgo excitedly asks, where's the cue ball going? From personal experience, this has made watching the snooker a bit more fun for those not quite as besotted with the sport of myself and other podcast listeners. I feel I should temper this by explaining this is not something for every day, but it's just a bit of fun when having a night in watching a semi-final on a Saturday night. Now, I should jump in here. So, thank you, Adam. It sounds very entertaining. I should jump in here and say uh, that, obviously, <laughs> there are risks to drinking, and we don't uh, we don't advise heavy drinking on this podcast. Uh, I, I, I enjoy drink myself. I have to also say that. And, Frank, actually, I'm going to take back what I just said. Do what you like. <laughs> if you want to have a drink, do what you like. Uh, anyway, we move on. To, as Adam is continuing here. He says, while I'm here, in reference to your section on banal meetings with players, my partner kindly got us tickets to the semi-final of the Welsh Open, where we saw Robert Milkins triumph in the day session on the Saturday. We ventured out for a few drinks in Clandigna that evening, ending up in a local curry house for dinner. We were excited to clock the milkman himself at a table for one, sat just across from us. Not wanting to disturb him eating, I was biding my time for an opportune moment to say hello and congratulate him. However, he finished and left before I got the chance or the courage. I did, however, capture the man himself in this picture. Now, it, he's actually sent the picture. This is terrific, actually. <laughs> this is terrific. So, uh, Adam has sent, has taken a picture of his, of his partner. She sat, uh, sort of smiling at the camera and right in the background, sure enough, there is Robert Milkins. There's no, no doubting. There he is. He, he, you know, enjoying, as, as, I think I've been in that place, actually. I think I know the one it is. It's, uh, yeah, nice place. Anyway, the milkman enjoyed a curry and, and good luck to him. He could certainly afford one that week. So that's terrific. This is getting even, even more niche because now it's not only it's not just meeting players; it's actually seeing them in the corner and sneakily taking pictures of them, which we don't, um, you know, we don't condone. But anyway, Adam's done it, and good luck to him. He says, "I'm looking forward to the World Championship. While I don't for a second agree with a lot of what he says or how he says it, I'm a big Ronnie O'Sullivan fan and would love to see him bag his eighth title. I'd also love to see Jimmy there one more time. Well, that ship has sailed, I'm afraid. Uh, it was watching his finals against Hendry in the nineties." that got me into snooker all those years ago. Yes, I say that should be so. What I mean is he won't be there this year playing because he got beat by uh, Martin O'Donnell. And it was not it was not a good performance, I'm afraid, from Jimmy. It was uh, both him and Hendry, you know, it was uh, disappointing. But um, 
you know, th there we are, the, 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 the passing of time and all that. Uh, now, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll move on. Elliot Jordan, he's our next correspondent. Uh, he says, thanks again for your excellent podcast. Although I'm not as in Barbary, and your podcast is the first one I listen to every week. Here are some inane ramblings. I live just outside of Glasgow, and the loss of the Scottish Open from Glasgow due to nanny state nonsense of Glasgow life, the quango who run all civic sports and cultural facilities, has been sorely felt by all West of Scotland snooker fans. Well, this is a very trenchant start from Elliot. I think what he's referring to there, forgive me if I'm wrong, is that they actually, the, the Scottish Open was at the Emirates Arena in Glasgow, and they stopped it being there. The reason it had to go to Clandidna that year was because, under the, their, their new rules, they wouldn't allow anything sponsored by a betting company because Bet Victor um, sponsored it, so they told them to sling the hook. So I think that's what Elliot's referring to. He says, this is just a plea from me to anyone at WST Matchroom who may listen to consider having a tournament in this area. It appears that some tournaments change venue either year to year or after a couple of years. Sorry, Hull, but we could steal the Tour Championship from you. It appears that the Scottish Open might be settled in Edinburgh and fair play for that, but it would be good for Scottish snooker fans to see another tournament up here. Re-random me re meetings with snooker players actually live in the same village as John Higgins and see him round and about. The most memorable sighting was we were both in the local chippy, where we, bo we were both getting haggis suppers. <laughs> now, the thing I like about this is there's no other detail there. We, we don't know if words were exchanged over a battered sausage. We don't know. But uh, they, there they were in the chippy, and they're entitled to be there, and they're having a haggis suppers. Very Scottish anecdote, that. He says, finally, I'm sure you've probably discussed this before, but I feel there should be some campaign to get Sean Murphy recognised as the greatest sports person on the planet on account of him being a former world snooker champion, having made a 147, making a hole-in-one in golf and a nine-darter. Enough of my nonsense. Thank you for your continued support for the game, both behind the microphone and behind a keyboard. Thank you, Elliot. Yes, I mean, Sean thinks... He, uh, Sean believes he's the only person on the planet to have made the three. I mean, the 147, we know he's done that. He's made seven in competition... The hole-in-one, there's a lot of luck involved in that, really, isn't there? But anyway, you know, good luck to him. The nine-darter, that's the impressive one, obviously, because that's kind of out of left field. Um, I don't know the specifics of that. But anyway, that's a very elite club to be in, clearly. That's a, that's a, that's a, you could almost call that a triple crown, <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's impressive. There's no, no two ways about it. But um, if anyone else knows of anyone who's, uh, who's done similar then let us know, because as a moment, it seems Sean's the only one. Fionn Lynch. There have been a few ideas for new snooker events being sent into the podcast, so I thought I'd send in mine. I already tried sending it, and here he is again, to Sean Murphy of Phil Seymour's podcast, The 147, a few weeks back. But they obviously didn't like the idea, because they didn't feature it. <laughs> well, there we are. They had other, you know, they were getting ready for their parachute jump, I suppose, which, which didn't happen. But anyway, uh, my idea was for the top 64 and the bottom 64 to be put on different sides of the draw so that all the top 64 played each other and the bottom 64 played each other until the final where they met. I feel this would give some exposure to the bottom 64 who are not often shown on TV and give players towards the bottom of the ranking list an excellent opportunity to close the gap to bigger guys. Now, you may be saying, Fionn, this would never work. The broadcasters would just show the top 64 matches on TV and the bottom 64 would be playing in the car park. Well, I have come up with a solution. The two halves of the draw would play alternating sessions. For example, the top half would play in the morning, the bottom half in the afternoon, and the top half again in the evening. I would call it the 64 split, and it would be played like the home nation's events with best of sevens up to the semis, but I would have best of 11s in the semis and a best of 19 match for the final. 
I would love to hear your thoughts on this idea, as it's one I've had in my head for years. Well, thank you, Fiona. I mean, there's, on the on the pure sort of idea, there's nothing wrong with it, but I don't really see the appeal of this um, to uh, you know a broadcaster because they kind of. Here's the thing: the bread and butter of of, of snooker in terms of your audience is star names. Now, the, the ratings from the Tour Championship early on they got better, but early on they weren't very good. And they usually are, and that was to do with the fact that a lot of the really well-known names weren't in it. Um, so, when you get to the final, I guess you want—you kind of want a couple of big names going at each other. You're not going to get this in this. You're going to get a very disjointed draw. There's arguments about, you know, you earn your ranking through winning matches. Why should you be penalised, actually, for almost for being a top player? Why should players at the bottom get? a sort of free run at the final. There's lots of arguments, you know, people can make, um, but it's an interesting idea and we thank you for it. We have a lot of uh, torment ideas and, uh, as I say, um, uh, thank you for sending it in. Uh, Andrew Robson. <clears throat> now then. He says, I've been thinking over different solutions to make it easier for both referees and players to help make the game more fluid. There's sometimes a bit of a stagger stroke stutter when colours are replaced. This is because the referee often needs to get in the player's way to either get the ball out of the pocket or to respot it. If the referees carried around a spare black, pink and blue on their person, this could help. Okay, now bear with this. He says that the referee just leaves the potted ball, aka black one, in the pocket, and puts another black, black two, on the black spot. Then whenever the time is right and it doesn't interfere with the rhythm of the player, the referee retrieves black one from the pocket and keeps hold of it. Obviously the biggest issue with this is where and how would the referee keep these balls on his person, in some sort of pouch? He would have to keep them in separate compartments to stop them clacking together. They would have to be soft and static-free too. Perhaps there could be a, just be an extra blue, pink and black in pockets ready to place from each side to suit the situation. So three blues, three pinks and three blacks in rotation at all times, two of which would stay in the pocket, just a thought. It's not a massive problem as it is now. But it's also not nice to try and improve the game, especially if it can be a simple solution. Thank you, Andy. Andrew, um, I'm not quite clear what the problem is here. <laughs> when you're saying um, there need to be more, more blacks around, to, to what is the problem exactly um, that you're referring to? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, well, you're saying get in the player's way so they have to walk to the pocket. So what you're saying is... He pops the black into the left corner. The referee's on the right-hand side. Instead of walking round to the left corner pocket to get the black out, he just produces a black or she produces a black from their pocket. I mean, I, I, Marcel Eckhart is a listener. I will speak to Marcel about this, but I'm, I'm suspecting they, the referees probably don't want to be encumbered with, with more sort of things in their pockets. And also, they're so attuned to actually going round to the pocket to get the ball out, they probably forget they had another blue or another black in their pocket. You know, they were just through sort of... You know, just having done it so, it's like muscle memory, done it so often, they would just go around and... I don't think this is a major problem, I've got to be honest, Andrew, but thank you for <laughs> for your idea. You never know, people out there may be saying, yes, this is this is what we should be doing. So, I'm not, not dismissing it, but I, I, I suspect that will not be happening. Phil writes, um, just a quick and peculiar question. When I've attended venues and viewed the scoreboard monitor... I've always been confused by the ribbon that runs along the bottom that logs the individual shots. If a player pots a ball, the relevant points value is displayed, which is logical. However, if there isn't a pot, the shot is recorded with a P. What does the P stand for? Similarly, the first shot of the frame is logged as C, which is also a bit baffling. 
I appreciate the query is a bit random and only relevant to those that attend the venues, which is something I've been curious about for some time. Well, this is one of those questions where I've read it out and what I should have done is found out the answer first, <laughs> which I've not done. It, I suspect it, it's just the uh, software. Um, the, you always have a marker who's, who's marking, you know, on, on, a, on a sheet manually, but they also have to operate the scoreboard. Um, so you say if there isn't a pop, the shot is recorded with a P. I suspect that just means, you know, it sends the cursor, I guess, back to the other player, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, the first shot of the frame is logged as C. I don't know. Does that just log who's broken off? I'll, I'll try and find these things out. As I say, I should have found that out beforehand, but, um, you know, it's not the most professional podcast, is it? Let's be honest. <laughs> uh, Michael Waring. I'm an avid listener of the pod, but like many others, it seems, this is the first time I've emailed you. As you may be aware, my primary interest is amateur snooker rather than the professional game, but as the lines between the two are very much blurred at the moment, more and more are looking at the many and various ways of qualifying for the main tour and comparing these pathways with days gone by. One opinion that appears to crop up on a regular basis is that the winner of the English Amateur Championship should be given a place on the tour. Some say that it used to be the case. However, despite some research on my part, I've not been able to find a definitive answer. The question is, was it part of the prize for winning the English Amateur Championship to be given a place on the main tour, as is the winner of the World Snooker Federation Championship, for example? Or is it just an example of the Mandela effect? Now, the Mandela effect, I believe that means um, people who... Is this the thing that you, people thought they heard of the death of Nelson Mandela before he was actually dead? I think that's what it is. People swore they, they heard that he died and he was still alive. I think that's what that is. But anyway... Um, that's not what you're asking about, really. You're asking about the English Amateur Championship. As far as I'm aware, it has it has not been a pathway onto the tour. And I think it's quite obvious why, really, because why should the English Amateur Champion get a tour card and not, for example, the Welsh Amateur Champion or the Scottish Amateur Champion or the Canadian or the South African or the New Zealand, whatever country you can choose. Of course, it is a very historic tournament, the English Amateur Championship. It's the oldest tournament in snooker. In 1916, it was first held. So it has a real history and a real prestige. But I suppose the argument is, why should that particular tournament be a pathway onto tour and not the others? So as far as far as I'm aware, I mean, certainly going back, you know, in the old in the in the old days, you know, there weren't these paths on. There weren't sort of paths on for winners of amateur tournaments, apart from the world amateur champion could turn professional. It, it's changed a lot over the years, and there's now more sort of ways of qualifying. But as far as I'm aware, the English Amateur Championship isn't one. Having said that, of course. Going back, if you did become English Amateur Champion uh, back in the day, you were more likely, if you put yourself before the WPBSA, to be looked on favourably if you were trying to turn professional. So it was a way of proving that, you know, you could you were sort of made of the right stuff. Because in those days, I'm going back sort of 50 years, the way you turn professional is you had to be accepted by your fellow players and there was a committee and you had to go before them. So if you're English Amateur Champion then you obviously you will be looked on you know with with a certain degree of reverence i'm sure but in terms of sort of more lately i'm not aware of that actually being a way onto the main tour uh, i can't say it's never happened but i am pretty sure i'm pretty sure that it's uh, it's not actually uh, been a way for people to get on danny kyle the last few matches of the Tour Championship were fantastic and really show that the bonus arena works well for single-table snooker. However, as you said in your midweek edition podcast, the lack of spectators really put a downer on the opening round matches. Hopefully this will be better next year, but I, but I think it's a problem at quite a few events that's worth trying to fix. 
there is a really simple solution to empty seats that is used by virtually all venues and promoters. Namely, quietly giving away last-minute free tickets. You suggested WST doesn't want to devalue tournaments by doing this, but surely it, it should realise that empty seats themselves devalue the product for players on the TV and for fellow paying spectators. Giving away 200 tickets costs the same as having 200 empty seats, but makes the tournament look much better and would probably make people watching on TV more likely to attend in the future. If WST doesn't want to give away seats to the general public, one of the easiest ways to fill seats is to give last-minute tickets to NHS staff. Hall Royal Infirmary is 10 minutes' walk away. One email to the communications team would have got the offer in the staff newsletter. Alternative, there are, there are national NHS free ticket websites WST could have offered tickets to. It's very technically straightforward. Staff can be given a unique code to input into WST's beloved seat tickets and an e-ticket issued in the normal way. Many NHS... Staff work shifts and are much more likely to have free time during the day on weekdays than other staff groups. As an NHS employee myself, I've seen Premiership Rugby, West End Theatre, T20 Cricket, concerts at the Albert Hall and Roger Federer in the ATP Finals at the O2. All for no charge, because the organisers need to fill seats to create an atmosphere. Empty seats are an issue for even the biggest events, but generally everyone understands that it's better to fill the seats than leave them empty. It introduces a new audience to the game who might come back in the future and buy tickets. WST could even put out a news story on how they gave 500 tickets away to the local NHS staff. I just don't see what the drawback is. Do you think it's an active decision not to do this or just a lack of any effort? Well, thanks, uh, Danny Kyle. A great email. Firstly, I would say the principle of giving free tickets to the NHS is certainly one I would support. I think that's a great idea. All the work that they do, um, particularly, obviously, well, not just particularly during COVID, but all the time, you know, they literally save lives. And I think it's great to that, that, that process to reward them with tickets is a great thing. Um, I did raise this, not this specific email, but the, the idea of, of giving tickets away or, or, or selling them, you know, much cheaper. And the argument was, and I, I found it a bit strange, actually, the argument from World Snooker Tour was, if we give tickets away, it's unfair on people who've bought them. <laughs> but, I mean, do you, if you're sat in the front row, you paid your 25 quid, you don't know what the guy six rows behind has paid or, or not paid for the ticket. I'm not really sure that's, that's, that's an acceptable answer. Like you say, it's about... TV snooker is a shop window, OK? It's about how it looks. And if you turn on and it's half empty, it doesn't look very good. If it's full, it looks better. Simple as that. So there needs to be a strategy, whether it's free tickets or discounted tickets. There needs to be some strategy. If you haven't sold your full quota, how do we get everyone else through the door? OK, and it may be the NHS route that you mentioned. It may be, you know, two for one deals, students, snooker clubs, whatever it is. Clearly, I think everyone recognises there needed to be more effort made in Hull. In the end... The, the tickets sold really well last three days and it was a great atmosphere there. It really was terrific and I really hope we go back there because it would be a great shame to just dump the place after one year. I don't think the Tour Championship will be there again but hopefully something will um, because there clearly is interest. I just need to get the, the ticket pricing strategy right and uh, as you say come up with a, a strategy to, to fill the venue if they haven't sold the full quota of tickets and I think your ideas are very good and um, I will. I'll, I'm actually going to pass this email on to snooker because i think it's certainly something worth considering like you say it's good pr anyway to to be seen to be helping nhs staff as these other events and sports that you mentioned have done now we had a few emails about the tour championship that came in just just after i recorded last week's episode so craig has written in here he says i write this just after the first session of the final it's finally poised at four apiece spoiler alert by the way craig sean murphy wins i think you know that by now 
What a match so far, and in keeping with the fantastic tournament from start to finish, I've managed to catch the majority of the matches. I've thoroughly enjoyed every one. The players have all been a credit to the sport. I wish the same could be said for those in charge of the sport, however. As well documented this week, the crowd attendances have been appalling and are not a good advert for the game. A lot needs to be done to improve this going forward. I wrote to you earlier in the week, but my email may have been missed when you were going through them on the previous podcast. I was asking if you knew of any occasions where the colours had ended on the wrong spots and whether there had ever been an instance of all the colours at one time in a frame having to be placed on alternative spots to, uh, to their own due to them being covered or unavailable. Or if this has never occurred, were you aware of occasions where multiple colour balls were on the wrong spots simultaneously? I appreciate this may be beyond even your vast wealth of snooker knowledge, but I just felt like picking your brains. Well, I'll deal with that, Craig. I don't, I don't know of that happening. I've seen it where you sort of, they, you, they sort of recycle them so the sort of three balls are on wrong spots because, you know, you, say the brown goes on the pink spot, then the pink has to go on the blue spot, so then the blue has to go on the brown spot. So that, that can happen. Um, I've seen that happen, but all six, no. I'm prepared though, anyone out there who, uh, who may have seen that, and this is niched up, but that's what we're here for. If you have seen that, then let us know. Uh, he goes on to say he's looking forward to the collusion of the final, but that's, that, that ship has sailed a little bit because we know who's won. Uh, Sean Murphy, by the way, got to, got to be said, how well did he play again, uh, in that final? Um, very, very impressive. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how he goes on at the Crucible. Uh, but thank you for that, uh, Craig. I'm sorry I missed the email. They do sometimes fall down the, the back of the sort of metaphorical sofa. Alpha Bonzi, who can't leave Alpha out, uh, coming in with three questions. After Sean Murphy pulls out the tour championship, pulls the tour championship trophy out of his hat, see what I did there? Uh, yeah, he's the magician, I suppose, is what you're doing. My three insightful questions are, number one, after being pulled back to 4-4 at the mid-session after a barrage of big breaks to start the final, did Karen Wilson lose the match in his post-session interview? His off-table worries, thankfully apparently easing aside, should he not have been angrier, he couldn't press home such a big lead. Well, I think it's an interesting point you raised there, Alpha, because for the first time that I've seen it, there were interviews halfway through, and I think they were very revealing. Because they weren't, you know, when a match is finished, you've either won or you've lost, and it's done. Being interviewed in the middle of a match, you're still in that kind of, it's almost a sort of kidology phrase, I think. The players have to say things to themselves almost to make them believe what they're saying. And Kyron was sort of saying, well, you know, his son had been ill, Bailey, and, and that's a horrible thing to happen, and, you know, obviously we wish him well. He was sort of saying, I'm just grateful to be here, and it doesn't really matter if I win or lose. He was saying that. Now, of course it mattered, really. He wanted to win. Why wouldn't he? You know, he puts everything into his snooker, Kyron. He's a great competitor, very professional character. And, of course, he wanted to win. But you've got to kind of put a brave face on it. And you can't afford to... He can't go on TV having lost four on the spin like that and say, I'm gutted. Because Sean Murphy might see that. Other people will pick up on it. So you've got to put a brave face on it. And that's the thing. When a match is still going, you have to do that. So I don't think he lost it there, no. I think he lost it because Sean just played better snooker on the day. And that's that's basically it. Kyron played brilliantly that week, but just not quite, not quite enough in the final. But I think those interviews are interesting, and I, I, my prediction is, and I've got no insight into this, but my prediction is we probably, once the BBC have seen that, they'll probably think, well, maybe we could do a few of those, maybe at the World Championship. We'll see. Question two. What will the 2023 World Champion be doing as this podcast is being recorded that will give him the edge over the other 31 qualifiers and prove the difference in becoming Crucible King? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, what will they be doing as this is recorded? Probably practicing, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you know, all the all the players are obviously half of them, sixteen who will play there, are playing in the qualifying. The rest of them are getting ready for it. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that, I don't think there's anything you can do necessarily to give you an edge other than just prepare as well as you can um, and go there, you know, feeling that you've done the work and, you know, that you're in the best state you can be, I suppose. And number three, whilst in no way anywhere close to the ludicrous Rodney Walker days or the ridiculous Rex Williams, Mark Warman, Jim McKenzie era with the... and I, I, I'm going to swear again here because I did use this phrase myself. With the pissing contest with the reigning world champion, the match-fixing scandals, torment seeping away with an explanation and the disappointing early attendances in Hull, does Will Snooker have a PR problem? Well, <coughs> yes or no, I would say. I mean, that's a, that's a wider topic for another day, really. I think... I think... What I will say about that, okay, I think they do have a problem, but I think they have recognised it. There are new people who've come in. There's a new commercial uh, director who's from the world of football, where you know you have it's a very competitive world, and you have to kind of you know be on top of things. And I think slowly but surely things are changing, and they need to. I mean, the, the live scoring again during the, the qualifying has been a bit of a shambles. I was actually obviously commentating on the qualifying for Discovery Plus. I went on there during a match to see how many centuries there'd been. And there'd been 40 centuries, OK? So I, I, I delivered this information. About 10 minutes later, I went back on just to see if there'd been any in, in the period in which, you know, since I last looked. We're talking 10 minutes. And it, it was showing 39. So one had disappeared in that time. And it was, apparently there was a problem with... Uh, that the scoring system was sort of lapsing and, and scores were disappearing and scores weren't updating... At the end of a session, you couldn't actually find out the scores on the World Snooker website for, for for the first few days because they weren't updating on that sessions tab or that matches tab. That's appalling. It's the World Championship. They're promoting the World Championship. That is appalling. We had to go to snooker.org. I use snooker.org anyway because it's brilliant. The people who, who, who uh, constantly update the scores are brilliant. They're all snooker fans. And, you know, great thanks to them for the work they do because... You know, the World Snooker Tour have a lot of resources, a lot of money, but they, for long periods of the qualifiers, were unable to keep the scores updated properly, and it's just not good enough. So when you say, do they have a PR problem? Actually, they do a little bit, and it's things like that. Phil Haig made the point on Talking Snooker about the, the way they present the draw. So you get two PDF files, you click on one, it's got the the numbers of the matches, okay? You click on the other, it's when you have to... Note the number, so say Judd Trumby's match four, when does Judd play? Oh, we go to the other file, and it's Wednesday afternoon at half past two. I mean, come on. The World Championship draw was put out on their website this week, with no names filled in. You have to, you have to click on that, note the number, go to the... Th come on. How long does it take to write names into a little box? It's not good enough. So, some of these things, they, they're very small, actually, when you think about it. But they all add up to the idea that it's a little bit sort of shambolic. And it, it shouldn't be. You know, there's a lot of good people work there. There's a lot of good stuff coming this week in the build-up to the World Championship. The World Championship itself will be run really well. But in terms of does it have a PR problem, yes, it does. And these little things need to be cleared up. And if they are, I think Snooker can really turn a corner. I, I, I might make a prediction now, OK? We're going to have this match-fixing inquiry. Obviously, I don't know what, how it's going to end. But it's going to be bad headlines for Snooker, obviously, the fact that it's happening. But my prediction is next season we will turn a corner. I think we'll have more tournaments. I think we'll be back in China. And I think there'll be a better feeling about things because I think the new people will have been there for a few months. They'll make their presence felt. There'll be a little bit more energy, a little bit more dynamism. And I think things will improve. I genuinely believe that. I think things will pick up. And I think that uh, people will start to see snooker in a more positive light. It's been a difficult time the last year or so. 
Um, and I think World Snooker are aware of some of these problems. I think they want to correct them, and that's good. And we should all help them do that and work with them. I'm going to be on Judgment Day, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm looking forward to working on that. Ken Doherty, by the way, he's supposed to be doing that. He's, he's actually in round three, uh, so he's playing Monday. So we don't even know if he's available. If he beats Pang Jong Yu, I don't know who they're going to get. But anyway, um, the point I'm making is I, I think that it's true that there are that there is a kind of PR problem, but I think they're aware of that and they are taking steps to rectify it. They've got me and Phil Yates doing these pieces on the website, trying to create a bit of debate and interest and opinion and argument about how the top 16 might do. So things are moving. They're moving a bit slowly, but as I say, I think next season, I genuinely think things will look better and. Uh, you know, as I say, we all have, have a part to play, so let's play it. John Hill writes, I'm thinking out loud regarding ideas for growing the game. Borrowing stroke stealing ideas from the darts world, would a UK, uh, Europe weekly shootout style event held over the traditional off season be worth considering? Unlike the darts, this could be open to all 128 professionals and could prove useful growing the game. I've always seen the shootout as a billboard for attracting new people to the sport rather than necessarily pleasing the current snooker fans. If we can get even 20% of people who are curious enough to watch shootout snooker to then engage with the other tournaments, we'll be on to a winner. I think the more relaxed atmosphere of a shootout style could attract a more diverse crowd as in as it would appeal to people who just fancy a few beers and a chat whilst watching some decent snooker too. I think having different styles of snooker event is good for the diversification of the sport, which will help it survive long term. I realise I'm rambling, but on a different topic, things first timers at the snooker should know. The scoreboard inside the arena is different to what we see on the telly, and being able to interpret it can be useful. A good example is people clapping when they think there's a century break, but it's in fact just the total frame points scored by that player. I've rambled enough. Keep up the good work. Thank you, John. It's all about rambling, really. It's a podcast. Um, in terms of the shooter, I, I think I've said before, and I, I do stand by this, I think four days is enough, personally. I think if you overexpose it, it'll go a bit stale, and, and it's not sort of a novelty anymore. So I think the, the shootout, maybe you could have one more, possibly sort of outside Britain, but I actually don't think... You, I, I think if you want to showcase Stuka, I think you have to actually showcase the game as it is, not that, not a sort of different version of it, because... What's the point then? You know, I think, I think, I think, you know, we have to have confidence in the product that we have and the game that we have. Um, but it's an interesting idea, and I'm sure, you know, people, uh, people will listen to that and make their own minds up. I think finally, because unless we get any more emails in while I'm speaking, and that's always an exciting prospect. Uh, Mike, Michael Holt in San Diego, not not uh, not Holty, our, our dear friend, but uh, another dear friend in San Diego. He says. Uh, Hello from an early morning Swiss air flight from Manchester to Zurich, where I've greatly enjoyed your latest episode and thought I'd write with a few lines. A few episodes back, I recall your comment that Mark Williams could have a bit of practice and turn his hand to American pool, competing with the world's best players. Mark is undoubtedly one of snooker's greatest players and has a totally unique character and temperament, as well as a very classy technique for snooker. However, mastery of the nine ball US pool table, napless cloth, bigger, heavier balls and vastly different pocket cushion shapes and sizes is not something any snooker player could achieve without many years of practice and match play. It's a common and rather arrogant assumption, particularly in the UK, that snooker is a superior game and requires far more skill than pool. This is not the case at all. I think back to Judd Trump's recent rather underwhelming foray into US pool as an illustration of my point. Of course, all Q sports share certain aspects, hitting balls with sticks, but however accomplished a player may be at one discipline, they will require countless hundreds or even thousands of hours playing each time of each variant they seek to excel at. 
Thanks again for your wonderful podcast. It's always a treat to see it downloaded into my feed. May I close with a fervent wish for the jackpot for the title? Because that's Jack Lazowski. Well, that would be a popular win, certainly, Mike. Yes, I mean, the thing on the pool, they're all different sports. The Q sports obviously share, well, a Q <laughs> and a table, but you're absolutely right. They're all different skills, and it's not really right to say one's better than another. It's just personal preference. I think there is an assumption among snooker players that pool's easy because they see it as a game of potting. But it's actually a game of tactics as well. The break is such a big shot. And, it, it, you know, you're quite right when you say players have gone into it and have not really fared too well. So uh, a good defence there from Mike of, uh, of Nine Ball Pool. I will actually do this one from... It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be right to leave uh, Phil Spivy and Middlesbrough. I'm going to... Um, with great respect, Phil, you do a long um, bit here about the rankings and... I'm going to not read that out purely because we've spoken a lot about rankings and it's, I don't want to get sort of bogged down in that again if you don't mind. But you do also talk about Mark Selby and you say here, and I'm going to read this out because this is interesting. Mark Selby is often unfairly categorised by fans and pundits alike as a grinder who deliberately slows the game down. Very little mention is ever made of the fact he's made over 750 centuries and he's a very good all-round potter who's not afraid to take on difficult pots when required. He also possesses a very underrated cue action that's as good as pretty much anyone else's. But I rarely hear this mentioned. When he's in good break-building form, he's as good to watch as anybody. The fact that he has the ability to dig in and win matches and big tournaments when below his best form should not be met with the faint praise it often is. I'd love to see pundits and commentators focus more on the genuinely positive aspects of his game rather than being a bit one-dimensional. I've heard you speak very fairly about Mark. I wish more did the same. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, I agree with you. I, I think... The problem is he's so good at sort of controlling a match and controlling certainly when when it's broken play and, and, and tactically. You know, it's actually... It, it, it's complimenting Mark to say that. But you're right, he is a very heavy scorer. Um, he, he's at times a very positive player. I mean, that WST Classic, that last day, he played positive snooker, heavy scoring. I think he had four centuries on the last day. So you're absolutely right. He's capable of that. He's capable of playing a different game as well. And that's why... You know, I kind of sort of half-tipped him for the World Championship because he just seems to be able to do it all. And in those long matches, you kind of need to do it all. Now, there's a trivia question here. We don't do competitions normally, but there's a trivia question from Phil. He says, when was the, was the last World Championship final to feature both players making their debut in the World Championship final? This is a great question. Uh, now, should I should I actually answer it or should I leave it for people to answer? I'm going to leave it to people to answer. I'm going to be like Chris Tarrant. <laughs> contemporary reference on who was to be a millionaire does anyone know the answer it's a great answer this when was the last world championship final to feature both players making their debut in the world championship final great question and we'll answer it on thursday when i return if and by the way i'll have to remember to do that which you've got a good chance i won't <laughs> but do let us know snookersinpodcast.mail.com snookersinpodcast.mail.com thursday um is the draw uh for the world championship it'll be made at eight forty-five. On BBC Radio 5 Live. Now, I'm not aware, I, I, I hope you can listen to that outside the UK. Um, I'm not absolutely sure if you can. But on the BBC website, you can certainly listen to radio stations. So hopefully people can listen to that all around the world. Otherwise, it's a bit parochial, let's be honest. But it's good and early, 8.45. I believe Rob Walker and Sean Murphy will be in attendance. So we will know then who's playing who uh, at the Crucible. Now, I've one more email come in uh, while I've been yakking, uh, so it'd be remiss of me not to uh, not to acknowledge Brian Campbell. He says, Ryan Day's recent 16 red clearance got me thinking about unusual breaks and things we haven't seen in professional tournaments. 
is the last box to be ticked in a professional tournament a 155. Snook is unusual in that it has two maximum break possibilities, a 147 and a 155. I'm guessing this has called for some, for some adjudications at pub quizzes over the years. Given that Jamie Bennett holds the record for a highest break of 148 in the professional game, perhaps the holy grail of 155 won't necessarily be made by one of the obvious big hitters. One thing that I'd totally forgotten was Steve James's 16 red clearance at the Crucible in 1990, until I was reminded on the snooker.org website. It seems a pity such an achievement is, rarely, is, is relatively overlooked and rarely spoken about in recent years. Have you ever commentated on or witnessed any unusual breaks? Well, there's been very few 60... Thank you, Brian uh, Brian Campbell, there, for the email. Thank you, Brian. Well, there's been very few 16 red clearances. I think we're literally up to about five or six. I think it's five. Uh, Steve James, as you mentioned. Ricky Walden's done one. Mark Selby did one in China. Um, obviously, Ryan Day. Uh, and Liam Highfield, I think, last season. So, you know, there's not been many. Um, I don't think I'll commentate on any of them. I mean, obviously not Steve James's in 1990. Um yeah, I mean, if we saw, that's the next sort of thing in snooker, I think, that, you know, people get really excited about, the chance to, the, the idea that we would see a 16 red break of a more than 147 on television, or the sort of, the, the sort of devious sort of um, uh, person in me would love to see a 147 that's a 16 red break, because that would take some explaining, as you say, pub quizzes, I saw a furious row a couple of years ago in a pub quiz, not about snooker, about uh, the Oscars, it was about who won Oscars in which years, and uh, my friend who follows these things closely, pointed out that, uh, for example, the 1994 Oscars ceremony actually celebrates films from 1993. So who won Best Picture in 1993? They actually pick up the award in 1994. Now, this caused absolute mayhem and chaos in the, in the quiz. Um, I think we got barred, actually. But anyway, this is, this is by the by. But yes, you're quite right. Uh, the, it, it would take some explaining um, whether we ever see a 155. I mean, forever is a long time, obviously. But, you know, it's not likely to happen next week. But I think, a lot of averages, you've got to think, you know, eventually we will see um, uh, a break of more than 147. Jamie Burnett made the 148 in qualifying. It'd be fantastic to see it on television, wouldn't it? And the 16 red break from uh, Ryan Day, the total clearance, was fantastic. Uh, anyway, that's it for now. Um, that, that, that I'm going to answer that trivia question. I'm changing my mind because I'm actually writing a piece for Eurosport. By the time it comes out, it will be on the internet. So the, the answer, <laughs> sorry if you've already emailed in, the answer is 1981. 1981 was the last time that the World Final featured two players who'd never been in the World Final before, Steve Davis and Doug Mountjoy. Every World Final since, in the last 42 years, has featured someone who's either won the World Championship or finished runner-up. What that tells you is it's very hard for someone new to come and win it. Um, because normally you're going to be playing someone who's lasted the course, either as a winner or has got to the final before. Um, Anyway, it was a bit of a, a bit of a damp squib that competition because I just gave the answer. But anyway, the, thank you for uh, I was going to playing along. You didn't even get the chance for that. But anyway, thank you for <laughs> for listening. Uh, we'll be back on. I'm planning to be back on Thursday with uh, a, a short reaction to the draw. Um, in the meantime, Judgment Day. Do tune in to the World Snooker Tour YouTube and Facebook channels. We plan to uh, entertain you, and it'll be a very thrilling and exciting couple of days, I'm sure. Discovery Plus as well, of course, have the rest of the qualifying action. But in the meantime, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com is the email address. If you have any comments and questions and queries and insults, do feel free to send them in. Um, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com. But in the meantime, as we always say, particularly at this time of year, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. Anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.